Go ahead and turn to Romans 14. And if you want to, flip to 1 Corinthians 8, and you can just kind of hold it, because we're going to go back and forth between those two a pretty good bit this morning. They are parallel passages dealing with the exact same subject, but I'm primarily going to be working through the rest of Romans 14 this morning. And then next week, we'll be back directly in Colossians. However, I want to be clear, this Romans thing is not a sidetrack from Colossians. It's related to where we've been in Colossians. It's particularly related to where we're going in Colossians. So last week, we talked about freedom in Christ and Christian liberty in relation to matters that are matters of conviction and conscience rather than moral issues or commandments from Scripture. And today we're going to look at how to handle that liberty within the body of Christ, particularly in relation to the weaker brother. Who is the weaker brother? Who's not the weaker brother? How do we treat the weaker brother? How do we help the weaker brother move from weakness to strength? And when I say weaker brother, that means brother and sister. Paul used brother as an analogy, so you can just insert yourself in there if you're a lady this morning. Um, I do want us to keep one thing in mind, though. Paul is, as usual... Paul is talking about unity within the body and our purpose as believers to love one another. This is, a, this is a passage about the church body, how to function as a church within our body of, body of Christ, the local church body. And if you were not here last week, I do recommend go back and listening to the sermon from last week. It'll give you a little more context about this week, but just a quick recap. If you remember, the beginning of Romans 14, there was a disagreement about eating meat sacrificed to idols in pagan temples. Some thought it was a sin because they felt that the meat had somehow been tainted by the pagan ritual, and others realized that since the pagan gods didn't actually exist and they weren't worshiping gods by eating meat to a god that didn't exist. So let's get some cheap meat and go on. Paul said eating meat or not eating meat is neither good nor bad. You don't earn points with God by this choice. You don't get points either way. But you do need to stop judging others over matters that God didn't speak on and let each person determine in their own conscience whether to eat meat or not eat meat. God was not looking for uniformity. He's looking for unity. So these disagreements are not moral issues. They're not things we can pass judgment on. They are matters of Christian liberty. And then Paul warned. If you remember, Paul warned that there's Basically, two opinions on these matters, typically these two reactions. The first is the urge to persuade others to adopt your viewpoint, believing that's the right viewpoint. And then the second is also a tendency for some to compromise their own convictions and conform to the beliefs of others, even though deep down they feel like it might not be the right thing to do. And Paul is more interested in that group than he is the other group. And that's where he gets to, at this point, in a... Romans 14, verse 13. So let's read that together. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of the brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in and of itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. And by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So the first thing we need to, to look at here is what Paul's telling us. He's saying when necessary, 
choose love over liberty. I want to be clear here. Paul is ultimately asking something that seems a bit contradictory. He says, look, you got this freedom in Christ to act in matters of conscience without judgment or guilt. It's awesome. You should celebrate it. You should use it for your freedom. It's part of the joy of being a Christian. And then limit that freedom. So, but it's, it's actually not a contradictory statement. It's a values statement. Remember, this isn't about you. And it's about your purpose and relationship in the body of Christ to the church. And Paul says there's something to consider before throwing your freedom around like a loose toddler in a candy store to, to limit that liberty for a specific purpose, for a specific reason, and for a specific person. Limit it in order to help the weaker brother or sister. So, who is the weaker brother? Let's talk about that. That's the question we need to answer today. There are four characteristics uh, in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. The first one we'll see is actually in verse 1 of chapter 14. Paul says they're weak in the faith. This doesn't mean saving faith. It means they're weak in certainty. They're, they're, they're weak in their conviction about what they believe about certain things. Notice it doesn't say new in the faith. It says weak in the faith, which could mean new, but not necessarily new, meaning that the weaker brother might not be a new believer. Maybe a new believer, but not necessarily a new believer. Now flip over to 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul's talking about the exact same scenario. Uh, he actually expands on it in 1 Corinthians. But let's see how he defines the weaker brother there. Verse 4, we'll notice that um, the other thing we see about the weaker brothers, they lack knowledge. Both biblical knowledge and simple understanding. Their, their conviction isn't that strong, and because of that, they don't have a solid grasp on the Bible. For instance, in verse 4, it says, because they didn't understand that the idol isn't actually real, they were concerned about food being offered to something that, in essence, didn't exist, thinking it would have a spiritual effect. Jump down to verse 4, you'll see it. It says, however, not all men have this knowledge. So it's just a simple matter of knowledge. Paul's talking about some people who just didn't have the information needed, so basically their faith wasn't strong enough because they were missing some key information. The good thing about that is getting people information is not that difficult. Just tell them the truth. Teach them. There's, there's growth there. And then the other aspect of verse 7 talks about a person whose conscience is also fragile. That's why they lack convention, uh, conviction. Their conscience being weak is defiled. Basically what this means is that their conscience is delicate, so delicate that it makes them feel guilty for things that the Bible actually says are okay or doesn't speak to at all. And finally, the weaker brother is also weak in their will. See that in verse 10. Meaning they can be easily swayed to do something that goes against what they feel is right. Um, and says in verse 10, for if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. It's like they, they're compelled to go against their own conscience because they see somebody else doing it. 
So basically, let's, let's define weaker brother in just kind of one sentence. The weaker brother, uh, the weaker brother or sister is a Christian who, because of the weakness in conviction, knowledge, conscience, and will, can be influenced to sin against their conscience by following the example of a differing, stronger brother or sister. So let's talk about who is the stronger brother. Well, that's pretty easy. They are the one strong in the areas where the person's weak. They're strong in conviction, knowledge, conscience, and will. But verse 1 of chapter 8, 1 Corinthians tells us that they may not be strong in the one thing that matters most, and that's love. You may have plenty of conviction, knowledge, conscience, and will, and kind of be a punk about your freedom. That's what Paul's talking about there. So we've got this entire focus of Paul. Um, he, he gives a specific instruction in, in back in chapter 14. He basically says, get off your spiritual high horse. Instead of judging each other, uh, the stronger brother should decide to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of the weaker brother. Now, if we're going to live up to Paul's admonishment here, we need to know what is a stumbling block. What exactly is a stumbling block? And it's defined in 1 Corinthians 8, 12. And uh, we're going to deal with it a little bit, and then we'll explain it later. It says, And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, that's the definition, and then it gives the implication, you are sinning against Christ. So a stumbling block refers to a person uh, or a situation, a situation where a person is more secure in their convictions and understanding of their Christian liberty, engages in an action that is considered acceptable. However, this action leads to someone who is not secure in their convictions sinning against their own conscience, which 1 Corinthians 8.12 tells us when, when we do that, we are sinning against Christ. There's a responsibility for this actually put on the person causing the stumbling block not and, and the person who sinned against their conscience. So this responsibility for sin is attributed to the stronger brother. And it's believed they should have been more considerate and attuned to the susceptibilities of the weaker brother, which means you need to know the people you go to church with in order to do that. And when this happens, you can see the seriousness of it. I mean, it's a serious charge. And I think for clarity's sake, we need to... We need to talk about one more thing real quick. We need to actually define who is not the weaker brother. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, one of the marks of a certain type of bad man is that he cannot give up a thing himself without wanting everyone else to give it up. That is not the Christian way. So here's my definition of who's not the weaker brother. The weaker brother is not the offended brother. Nowhere in that text does it tell us that this is the offended brother. There are some who want to play the weaker brother card when it's actually not theirs to play. Sometimes they play it for themselves. They'll say something like this. Hey, you did that thing I think is wrong, and I'm offended, and you shouldn't offend the weaker brother. And then they want to play it for other people. It sounds something like this. You really shouldn't do that thing I don't want you to do because it might cause someone to stumble. Not me, not me, but someone else, right? And this whole issue of being offended on somebody else's behalf is not getting better. It's getting worse. In fact, if I were going to create a fictional character uh, to represent this, this not weaker brother, 
this Pharisee, I would call him Larry Legalist. Larry Legalist is a guy who lives his life based on arbitrary religious rules that are his convictions, which, hear me out, if he wants to live that way, he's perfectly within his right to do so. But Larry is not within his right to tell me that I have to live by his arbitrary rules. Larry believes smartphones just lead to temptation, so no Christian should have a smartphone. Larry will agree with you that the Bible never condemns drinking alcohol in moderation, but he still has nagging doubts about the salvation of anybody who does. Larry really struggles with that guy who just won't really dress appropriately for church and really struggles with those parents who will just not keep their kids quiet who just while they're playing before church because it's irreverent. Let me tell you what's funny. Every one of those scenarios I just brought up, I have heard from a pastor in the last two weeks. Not, not anybody here. Um, but I sent a group text out and to get some examples. And they sped me, dude, it was like nuts. I was like, I, I had to shut the group text down. I was like, I don't need any more. And uh, um, see, Larry is perfectly in his right to, cra- to a Christian to practice this lifestyle. He's not in his right to dictate to me or you how to live that way and then claim that we're morally wrong for not living up to his standards. See, Larry's not a weaker brother because Larry is convinced in his conscience. And my freedom's not going to sway Larry to, to sin against his conscience. Larry is what Joe Aldrich calls a professional weaker brother. He takes his convention, his convictions and he universalizes those to everyone else and then he makes moral judgments on those that don't live up to his standard of what he sees as Christian living. He stumbles over my freedom, but not in the same way Paul's talking about in Romans 14. And Larry's actually no better than the Pharisees that, that, that uh, Jesus rebukes for healing on the Sabbath. He's not a weaker brother. In fact, Larry's sins caused by his refusal to learn from those others who are free in Christ and how to work within a local body. In, um, in, in the book, Accidental Pharisees, Larry Osborne points out that one of the problems of this is that any of us could become Larry Legalist at any point over any issue if we're not careful. He says it happens, usually it happens, we'll make a, some step of faith or discover something new in Scripture that really challenges us from, from a practical living standpoint, and we'll clean up an area of sin, or, or we get into these words, we discover some new spiritual discipline, new theology, and then we notice how everybody else is lagging behind. It's like, y'all need to catch up, y'all need to get up here where I am, and, and, uh, and then we go into a cage stage version of that, and um, y'all know what cage stage is? It's usually when somebody, it's usually associated with Calvinism, but you can do it with any theology where you learn this new thing and you don't really know it yet how to articulate it and you're excited about it and probably a little bit of a punk about it, so you need to be locked in a cage until you figure it out and then we'll let you out until you can actually hang out with people without annoying everybody. That's cage stage. Um, so, and uh, I might do a sermon one day on how Jesus dealt with Pharisees, but just really quickly, briefly. I would say if you're dealing with somebody like Larry Legalist, don't avoid practicing your liberty just because they claim it offends them. Don't let yourself be pressured into adopting their view, especially if it conflicts with the message of grace 
or could potentially even cause you to do, not do something or do something that would ultimately cause you to sin against your own conscience. We're told in Romans 12, as much as you seek peace, do so. However, if your attempts to seek peace with Larry are constantly rejected, it might be time to step back and let God take care of them, practice what Jesus said in Matthew 15 about the Pharisees, where he said, let the blind lead the blind, right? Um, and so that's who Larry Legalist is. I mean, that's who the Wicker Brother is not. But how do we actually treat the, the weaker brother? Let's get back into the text. If you're interested in the biblical concept of the conscience, right? There's a really, really good book out there. It's very short. It's probably less than 100, maybe 100 pages, 110 pages at the most. It's written by a guy named Andrew Nacelli, who, who goes through the scriptures on the conscience. And you'd be shocked how many scriptures there are on the conscience. I highly recommend it. In his book, he talks about the conscience, how, how the, the Bible addresses it, and how the conscience is part of who we are as image bearers. Um, it's part of our humanity. Animals don't have a conscience. No matter how guilty that dog looks on those YouTube videos, um, when they run, and have y'all seen those videos where somebody comes into their house, there's like two, three dogs in the house, the house is trashed, stuff is everywhere, and they go, who did this? And one of the dogs runs over and literally points at the other dog. Have y'all seen those videos? It's the craziest thing. Um, and, uh, and there's multiple of them. No matter what, those dogs don't have a conscience. That's part of humanity. It's part of our personhood. Also, it's important to remember that the conscience was in the garden before the fall. Adam and Eve had a conscience pre-fall. The conscience is not part of the fall. Now, it's who we are, it's, it's attached to our fallen nature, but it's a gift of God. Uh, Romans 14.22 tells us, it says, Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. That's, a, that's speaking of the conscience. That's, that, uh, your conscience is only yours. No two people have the same conscience. Um, but what Paul's warning about here in, in uh, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 is that your conscience can be damaged. The uh, King James actually used somebody who has a seared conscience. Like you can picture that, of taking the conscience and putting it on a hot plate and searing it, you know, to where nothing can get in or out. It's just messed up. And the reason we're told to choose love over liberty when necessary is that the stronger brother can cause the weaker brother to violate their conscience which means their conscience becomes weaker, which can actually lead to more sin, potentially even breaking actually God's moral law. And while we, we tend to think sins of the conscience aren't as big as breaking specific commandments, according to Romans 14, 23, God doesn't make a distinction between the two. It says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, and whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So the conscience is like a moral compass in a person's soul. So picture it as like, like a co-pilot helping you navigate the seas of choices and giving you a heads up when you drift off course and your thoughts and actions. And we can choose to ignore that voice and do what we know is off track. I know that, you know, cartoons used to portray it as like a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other shoulder. But it's probably more like an angel on this shoulder and then just you 
are your own devil. And so that's probably a better way to portray that. Um, and uh, so we can ignore those things. Uh, we can take our conscience lightly. Um, and, but the reality is, is the conscience doesn't mess around. It's black and white. It's an all or nothing judge. But the thing is, is because of the fall, it's not always in perfect alignment with God's will. So even, even, but that doesn't really matter in the sense of these things of sinning against our own conscience. Um, it's not going to hesitate to pronounce you guilty or innocent, regardless if it's aligned with God's will or not, which are some of the things that we could consider when we're, when we're thinking through this issue of conscience and trying to grasp how it works. And, and the key, I think really the best thing to realize is that at, even though your conscience might not be a carbon copy of God's will, um, it's still binding. When you brush off the red flags that your conscience gives you, you're in essence choosing your path over God's, and that's, that's the, the heart. It's the nature of rebellion. It, it's what Isaiah 53, 6 says. says it, it's the detour from divinity when we, when we sin against our own conscience. Which might sound scary, but the reality is, is both of these things, that you can grow in your conscience. You're, you can grow in your ability to surrender more to the will of God and understand the will of God. So there's growth there. You're not always stuck there. Um, and so Paul urges uh, us in chapter 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians, us, the Corinthian church, Here's what, here's what he talks about. He goes on this, he's, he begins to talk about the nation of Israel and how they had all of these unique, special privileges, but they gradually experienced moral erosion and fell into idolatry. And, and honestly, as a nation, that was the besetting sin of the nation of Israel was to always fall into idolatry. That's the history of the Old Testament. They fall into idolatry. God sends some group over there to capture them and haul them off until they repent, and then he'll send them back and give them a hundred years, a couple hundred years. They'll, they'll fall into idolatry again. And, you know, so the Babylonians show up and the Assyrians show up, and then the Romans show up. And, I mean, it's just this, that's the cycle of the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. And Paul is talking here in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 about a group who had a tendency to fall into idolatry. And he's trying to address how this body of believers is going to function together. How are they going to build each other up rather than tear each other down? And he says, love is the reason we limit our freedom when necessary because love builds up. And this is, he says this in chapter 14 and verses 15, 18, and 19. But I want you to look at Romans 15, 1. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So picture the weaker brother as a building under renovation and there are scaffolds surrounding it and there's work going on, it's a work in progress and God's the builder, God's working on this building. And if, you're a, if you happen to be a stronger brother, your role that you play in relation to the weaker brother 
is not to undo the positive growth that's happening in this person's life to to do what God in uh, what Paul in verse 20 says when we do that we actually destroy the work of God but I think one of the other things we really need to notice here is this is not about avoiding harm it's actually about harmony it's about building each other up it's about actively contributing to the good of the church the body of Christ to be supportive and helpful in this journey and Paul emphasizes that it's not simply about avoiding being a stumbling block it's about becoming a positive force in someone's spiritual life because the weaker the stronger brother is in a position to help the weaker brother become not a weaker brother anymore but you got to be careful that in your discipleship you don't cause them to sin against their conscience there's a balance that's got to be encouraged here and, and Paul talks about that multiple times we, we're not going to spend too much time on it he said instead of, instead of dwelling on what you're giving up focus on the positive impact you're making in someone else's life. Stop thinking about yourself. Think about others. And he says to see ourselves as part of a bigger picture, we're contributing to God's work. That's part of our good works. And, and honestly, this is the, uh, we read in Philippians. I'm going to read it again here in a few minutes. This is the Christ. He, he made the ultimate sacrifice. And as the stronger brother stepping in to help shouldn't, be about gaining recognition for your sacrifices. It ought to be about someone else's spiritual growth, which is part of what we do as believers. So in love, we help them become stronger because that's what it means to build them up. And we do that with love. We don't do it out of reluctance. We don't do it with an attitude of disappointment. Man, I really want to do this thing, but I can't do it because of Joe over there. just won't let me do it. Joe, I didn't mean you. I was talking about invisible Joe over there in the hall. So, um, and... Uh, and so, and, and so, you know, don't have this, oh, I can't believe this guy's trampling on my freedom. And I know somebody out there has got to be thinking, is that really freedom? I remember years ago, we, we were actually having this conversation with a group of uh, college guys. And one of the guys asked a question somewhere along those lines. He said, if if I have to not practice my freedom to make sure that someone who is weak doesn't fall into sin, do I really have freedom? I was like, man, that's a great question. Thankfully, I didn't have to answer it. Paul already answered it in the text. He says, be careful with your freedom and use discretion. But Paul never says, don't ever act on your freedom. He doesn't say that. That's why I said, when necessary, choose love over liberty. In 1 Corinthians 10 is where he addressed it, actually. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this from the New Living Translation because I think it's just a little easier to understand. He said, this is what he says, So you may eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If someone who isn't a believer asks you home for dinner, accept the invitation if you want to. Eat whatever is offered to you without raising questions of conscience. And then he goes on, that's, and the someone there is a weaker brother. He says, but then suppose someone tells you, 
This meat was offered to an idol. Don't eat it out of consideration for the conscience of the one who told you. It might not be a matter of conscience for you, but it is for the other person. And then he concludes this thought by saying, For why should I, my freedom be limited by what someone else thinks? If I can thank God for the food and enjoy it, why should I be condemned for eating it? So let's look at Paul's take on the weaker brother. First he says a couple little practical things. In 10, 25, 27, look, look, if you want to eat this meat, dig in. The earth is the Lord's. Everything belongs to the Lord. So if someone invites you over for dinner and you want to go, go eat it. Don't overthink it. Don't make a deal out of it. Basically, Paul says celebrating freedom is a good thing. He's saying as the stronger brother, you don't have to conduct polls to see if a weaker brother's watching or... Or, or if, if it all seems good, follow your conscience. Don't worry about some hypothetical weaker brother hiding out in the bushes. Right? But there's a plot twist. If a weaker brother pops up out of the bushes and says, Hey, that meat was sacrificed to idols. Paul says, Don't eat it. Exercise restraint. Discretion. And then he talks about the motivation at the end of chapter 10. But I want you to actually go back to Romans 15. When we limit our freedom for the sake of the weaker brother, we serve Christ and the church. In verse 5 of chapter 15, he says, For whatever was written in the form of days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Not sinning is not the goal of the Christian life. I'm going to repeat that. Not sinning is not the goal of the Christian life. I'm not making excuses for y'all to run out and sin. But it's not the motivation for what we do when we serve the body or to even live our lives. Paul says the motivation for doing this isn't to simply prevent sin, it's to serve Christ and build up the church so that in one accord with Jesus Christ, with one voice, we will glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Christ practiced when he came to earth as a Savior. I read it this morning in Philippians 2. I'm going to read it again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so the question is, if Christ is our example, can we not limit our freedom on occasion to serve others if Christ was willing to lay down his life to serve you? 
Jesus is the model. Jesus is the motivation. Jesus actually isn't just the model and the motivation. We are empowered to do what Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 4, I mean, sorry, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. We are empowered to do those things through the Spirit of Christ. He empowers us to love and good works. So this motivation is for protecting, discipling, building up the weaker brothers and sisters in Christ in order to serve the bride of Christ, which is who Christ loves. Christ loves his bride, the church. And I don't think, I think a lot of times we think too individually when we think about the love of Christ. So much of the New Testament is about serving the body, which is the bride, which is who Christ loves. I'm not saying he doesn't love as you an individual. That's not what I'm talking about. But I think we miss something huge when we don't look at this from a more community aspect of the nature of the, of the body of Christ in the local church. So we limit our freedom when necessary because it serves Christ. Who served us took on the form of a servant, humbled himself to death, death on a cross. Worship team, young one, come on up. So, I mean, it doesn't really get any more practical than some of these passages. And we see Christ as an example of, of a servant. And there's so much more going on. This is so much bigger, I think, than a lot of times we understand of the importance of the unity within the body, not necessarily uniformity. But the humbling of Christ is our greatest example of seeing how we should treat others. As, as Philippians said in Philippians 1, treat others as greater than yourselves. That's hard. Jim, that's hard. i got to be honest with you. I think about myself a lot. And most of y'all do too. Some of y'all probably are way further along in your sanctification than me. But I know a lot of y'all, and I know you think about yourselves a lot. What does that mean, think of others as greater than ourselves? That means, that means when we have these things, when we think these things, we serve. We want to serve others, serve the body to limit those things. Think of what Christ limited. He came from heaven, took on the form of a human. I mean, it's... I'm going to end up preaching another sermon if I don't stop. So... Let's celebrate Christ as the servant who said he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Amen? So as we partake in communion today, just keep that in mind. Be thinking through how this Im impacts you through, through the cross. And as we partake, if you're a baptized believer, we encourage you to partake in this with us. The worship team is going to sing. You can come forward and grab elements. For your family, yourself, however you want to do that, and then we'll participate in communion together when it's over.